Since Jinnah was allergic to mass mobilization or land reforms, the only way to attract people to the Muslim League was the use of religion. With slogans like Pakistan ka matlab kya and the answer being the kalma, la ilaha illallah, used in the 45-46 elections, there was no way the religious genie could be put back in the bottle after Pakistan was created. Second, when Iskandar Mirza asked Jinnah, who had become Governor General of Pakistan by then, to be, and I quote, considerate to the Muslim leaguers as after all they gave us Pakistan, unquote. Jinnah, who knew the insignificance of the Muslim League, dismissed it by retorting, and I quote, who told you the Muslim League gave us Pakistan? I brought Pakistan with my stenographer. Let me begin by admitting that there are two things that are difficult to talk about in India. One is cricket and the other is Pakistan. On both these subjects, there are over a billion experts who are convinced they have the answers. Additionally, a lot appears in the media on both the subjects. Leaving aside cricket, I'm sure you already know a lot about Pakistan and read about it daily in the newspapers too, as well as follow TV debates. So rather than repeating what you may already know or have read about or seen, I propose to take you on a different kind of journey and to give you a flavor of Pakistan that you don't normally experience. My emphasis would be on imparting an understanding of the deeper issues regarding Pakistan. I've divided the talk into four parts. I'll first give you a brief introduction about myself and where I'm coming from. I will then give you a broad overview of some of the issues that are important in understanding Pakistan. Developing this further in the third part, I will talk about the Pakistan army and the rather nebulous phenomena of the Pakistani mindset when it comes to India. In the last part of the talk, I will discuss the Indo-Pak relations and Pakistan's Kashmir fixation because you can't understand Pakistan without understanding these obsessions of Pakistan. My interest in Pakistan began quite early in life thanks to the stories my father, an Indian Air Force officer, told us about two Pakistan Air Force officers who had been his flight commanders in the Royal Indian Air Force during the Second World War, flying hurricanes and spitfires over Burma and also after the war. Later, these officers were to head Pakistan Air Force. The Indo-Pak Wars of 1965 and 1971 further heightened my interest in Pakistan. In college and university, I studied the history of the freedom movement and the partition of India, and I was hooked. During my service career, I have spent most of my time in various Pakistan-related desks. Post-superannuation, I've read even more on Pakistan than I did while I was in service. What I've found is that much of the attention in India quite naturally gets focused on issues of terrorism emanating from Pakistan, on the cross-border infiltration, on ceasefire violations, and the stop-go Indo-Pak relations. However, as a result, the real and serious problems of and in Pakistan tend to get ignored. While not losing sight of such issues, I have tried to study Pakistan beyond the headlines and the beaten track and sought answers to some fundamental questions like why, for example, as uh, Aparna mentioned in the beginning, is Pakistan such a troubled and troublesome state? Why is its survival frequently called into question? Why is it a terrorist supermarket? Are its problems of recent origin or are they rooted in its very genesis? The search for answers to questions like these led to my first book, Pakistan Quoting the Abyss, that was published in December 2016. It focuses on the critical issues facing the country. My lecture today is based on this book. My second book, Pakistan at the Helm, 
published in July 2018, focuses on the Pakistan's leadership during the last seven decades. And my third book, Pakistan, the Balochistan Conundrum, published in July 2019, talks about Pakistan's largest and most troublesome problems. It is my hope that these books will give a new viewpoint and a better understanding of Pakistan. For me, the starting point in understanding Pakistan is even before its creation, in the Pakistan movement itself. At its core, the movement was based on the belief that Hindus and Muslims could not coexist or they could only coexist if Muslims were rulers. This was a fundamental premise for the creation of Pakistan. The second fundamental premise was that religion provided the basis of nationhood. I will deal with this aspect later. Here let me focus on the belief that Hindus and Muslims could not coexist. Pakistan was imagined, conceived and premised on the notion that India's Muslims needed a homeland. In his presidential address to the open session of the Muslim League in Lahore on 22nd March 1940, Jinnah had said, and I quote, the Muslims are not a minority. The Muslims are a nation by any definition and they must have their homelands, their territory and their state, unquote. He was articulating the feeling of insecurity that had developed amongst a section of the Muslim elite in North India that they had become a minority. Not so much in numerical terms because they were always in a minority, but due to the loss of power in the wake of the long decline of the Mughal Empire and the growing domination of the British. So long as they were rulers and had power and patronage, this elite did not fear being a numerical minority. Loss of power coupled with the introduction of a representative government based on one man, one vote, raised fears of becoming permanently subordinate to the majority Hindus. Somewhere in the subconscious was also the apprehension of being ruled by those whom they had ruled for centuries. Sayyid Ahmad Khan was the first, was the first to articulate this apprehension in the late 1880s when he described representative government in India as a game of dice in which one man had four dice and the other only one. Jinnah echoed similar sentiments in the next century when in response to Gandhiji's statement that Hindus and Muslims were brothers and equals, Jinnah stated in his 1940 presidential address in Lahore, and I quote, Brother Gandhi has three votes, I have only one, unquote. This belief developed during the Pakistan movement about the two-nation theory that Hindus and Muslims could not coexist is a deeply held one in Pakistan even today. The second element in understanding Pakistan is that it did not start on a clean slate in 1947, but carried with it the burden and legacy of the Pakistan movement. Three elements were important here. One, the opportunistic use of religion. Two, total dependence on the British, as a result of which the Muslim League remained stunted as a movement and a political party. And three, transmitting the Muslim League's quest for parity with the Congress and between Hindus and Muslims to an obsessive quest of parity with India. Two telling examples would suffice. Jinnah had sanctioned the use of religion because the Muslim League was very weak or had no presence in the areas it claimed for Pakistan in the West. In Punjab, if you would recall, there was a unionist coalition government of Muslim Sikhs and Hindus. In NWFP, there was a Congress government. Only in Sindh did the Muslim League have a presence. Since Jinnah was allergic to mass mobilization or land reforms, the only way to attract people to the Muslim League was the use of religion. With slogans like Pakistan ka matlab kya and the answer being the kalma la ilaha illallah 
used in the 45-46 elections, there was no way the religious genie could be put back in the bottle after Pakistan was created. Second, when Iskandar Mirza asked Jinnah, who had become Governor General of Pakistan by then, to be, and I quote, considerate to the Muslim leaguers as after all they gave us Pakistan, unquote. Jinnah, who knew the insignificance of the Muslim League, dismissed it by retorting, and I quote, Who told you the Muslim League gave us Pakistan? I brought Pakistan with my stenographer, unquote. Unlike the Congress, the Muslim League had done no homework as to how Pakistan would be governed. Even the British cautioned Jinnah that since he had done no preparation, he would be in for a shock. The infirmities of the Muslim League would allow the army to step into politics and remain there till today. I will discuss the third issue of parity a little later. Pakistan continues to contend with the negative consequences of such a legacy even today. The third issue is of identity and is very critical. Simply stated, into the seventh decade of its creation, there continues to be a debate about, over the meaning of a Pakistani identity. A columnist, Khalid Muhammad, wrote in The Nation recently, and I quote, The world may like to call us Pakistanis. But there are few within the borders of this country that identify by themselves by that moniker. No, many of our citizens are ashamed to call themselves Pakistani, and that is where the problems of this nation start and end. Pakistan is a divided nation, to say the least. We are divided on ethnic, linguistic, political, religious, education, and provincial lines. We gather together under different political flags. We pray in masjids that are 100 feet from each other because of slight differences in the way we practice Islam." Unquote. Defining a Pakistani identity was a critical issue in 1947, and it continues to be today for at least two reasons. First, the geographical areas that came to constitute Pakistan in the east and the west of the Indian subcontinent had never before existed as a single country, and even in the west had not existed as one country. The challenge for the new state was to weld these different identities into one Pakistani identity. Second, the identity had to be different and distinct from India, since Pakistan had been carved out of India. India was a historical entity, but Pakistan as a newly created country with an unfamiliar name had to be acknowledged by the world as such. This need for distinctiveness led to the emphasis of an identity that was Islamic, taking its cue from the two-nation theory that I talked about earlier. Pakistani identity thus became based on Islam. The Pakistani professor Vahidu Zaman graphically enumerated this dilemma in these words, and I quote, If we let go the ideology of Islam, we cannot hold together as a nation by any other means. If the Arabs, the Turks, or the Iranians give up Islam, the Arabs will remain Arabs, the Turks will remain Turks, the Iranians will, give up, uh, will remain Iranian. But what do we remain if we give up Islam? And a rhetorical answer was given, If we are not Muslims, what are we? Second-rate Indians? Unquote. The problem with the emphasis of an Islamic identity, however, was that the opportunistic use of Islam was effective in creating a country by whipping up hysteria and communal passions, but was not effective as glue to keep the country together. This was because in the area that came to constitute Pakistan, there were historical states with significant linguistic, cultural, and ethnic diversities. Here, people instinctively thought of themselves as Bengali, Baloch, Pashtun, Siraiki, and Sindhis, rather than as Pakistanis. As mentioned before, even the geographical regions in the West had never been strung together as one country. Additionally, these provinces were not even in the forefront 
of the Pakistan movement and had no shared history. Wali Khan, the Pashtun leader, perhaps best exemplified the identity dilemma where he said in the National Assembly, and I quote, I've been a Pashtun for thousands of years, a Musliman for 1300, and a Pakistani for just over 40, unquote. Clearly for him and millions of others, the specific ethnic identity was far more important than a Pakistani identity. Not surprisingly, the attempt of the Pakistani state to force an Islamic identity on this diverse population has come a cropper. As such, Pakistan has not yet been able to establish an overarching Pakistani identity. Islam was not able to supplant the linguistic, cultural and historic bonds of its diverse population. This led to the continuing alienation of different ethnic groups despite being Muslims. East Pakistan broke away to become Bangladesh because for the Bengalis, language is a more salient part of their identity than Islam. A fifth insurgency is happening in Balochistan while there is unrest among the Pashtuns and the Sindhis despite all of them being Muslims. Even the failure to create a national identity by any other means, Pakistan has resorted to the tactic of raising the threat from India as the cement to bind the multiple identities of Pakistan. The narrative has become that India was out to undo partition. Pakistan has thus failed to resolve the contradiction between denying any Indianness in its identity and failure to look beyond India by clinging to the two-nation theory. While this can hardly be the basis of a sustainable national identity, it has implications for Indo-Pak relations. In fact, as soon as India became the negative reference point for defining Pakistani nationalism, there was no way Pakistan could develop a new and positive identity for itself or develop normal relations with India. It meant that Pakistan would need a Hindu India constantly as an essential reference point for its raison d'etre and its national identity would continue to be a negative anti-India narrative. Hence, hostility with India is par for the course and has become a necessity for Pakistan. Such an attitude towards India and Hindus has been reinforced by the government-approved school curriculum. According to a Pakistani study, and I quote, hatred against India and the Hindus has been an essential component of the ideology of Pakistan because for its proponents, the existence of Pakistan was defined only in relation to Hindus Hence, Hindus had to be painted as negatively as possible, unquote. An interesting development in the identity debate has been the gradual Arabization of the lingua franca, Urdu. By trying to deny its subcontinental roots, Pakistan has tried to locate them in the sands of Arabia and the arrival of Muhammad bin Qasim in Sindh in 712. As a spin-off, there is now a linguistic struggle that reflects the identity dilemma. The gradual Arabization is indicated by the replacements of subcontinental words by the Arab counterparts. Thus, Ramzan has become Ramadan, Khuda Hafiz has become Allah Hafiz, Namaz is becoming Salat, and even Pakistan is becoming Al-Pakistan. And now, God forbid, Punjab, the land of the five rivers, is soon going to become Punjab. Of course, the latest trend is to look for its identity in Turkey. The fourth issue in understanding Pakistan is Islamization. Incremental doses of Islamization, starting from the Objectives Resolution of 1949 and Zia's Islamization drive, have led to intolerance, insecurity and violence in a situation where different sects of Islam are almost at war with each other, where the persistent killing of Shias is being called genocide. Today, each sect of Islam has its own set of madrasas in different cities and localities in which privacy is given to arguments 
to attack and demolish the other sects. It is this narrow tunnel vision of Islam that has been imbibed by successive generations of Pakistanis. Where have all the incremental doses of Islamization left Pakistan? I'll give you one example. It is a bit gruesome, but it explains graphically where Pakistan is at. In January 2016, in the district of Qara, a 15-year-old boy apparently misheard a question relating to the Holy Prophet and mistakenly raised his hand in response. The local prayer leader and the section of the congregation pounced on him, accusing the boy of having committed blasphemy. To atone for his mistake, the boy went into the neighborhood field and chopped off his own hand using a fodder-cutting machine and presented his appendage to the preacher on a plate. The boy's family celebrated the action. The Nation, a major English daily, noted aptly, and I quote, If people are ready to hurt themselves in the name of religion, imagine what they would be willing to do to others. Unquote. The Daily Times asked ominously, and I quote, The sheer savagery of this act compels one to ask, have we really been driven to the edge of insanity in our subservience to the Maulavis and the Mullahs that we now chop off our limbs in order to acquire the status of a believer? Unquote. During the last seven decades, the space and opportunity for Pakistan to be a moderate and inclusive state has shrunk enormously. Religious intolerance confined to pockets at one stage is now widespread. The warning signs for the next generation are everywhere. The fifth issue in understanding Pakistan is of terrorism. While Islamization had a certain salience in a country created on the basis of religion, the growth of jihadi terrorism and violence prevalent in Pakistan today is the result of deliberate state policy. Given the roots of terrorism in Pakistan, it is unlikely that Pakistan's state will ever relent on using terrorist organizations as instruments of state policy. Right from its creation and more so afterwards, Pakistan has used jihadis of various hues as instruments of state policy without examining their long-term effects on Pakistani society. Not surprisingly, Pakistan is seen the world over as the epicenter of terrorism. This image is embedded in the world through a number of events, such as the kidnapping and killing of Daniel Pearl, the headquarters of the Afghan Taliban being in Pakistan, and above all, Operation Neptune Spear, where the Americans found Osama bin Laden hiding a scant kilometer away from the Pakistan Military Academy at Ahmedabad. The sixth element in understanding Pakistan is the use of violence. It is undisputed that Jinnah had a strong faith in constitutionalism and even disagreed with Gandhiji's policy of civil disobedience movement to fight the British rule. Yet, when it came to the crunch, it was he who gave a call for direct action in 1946 to achieve Pakistan through unconstitutional means, if necessary, which led to mass killings in Calcutta. Through violence, Jinnah wanted to conclusively demonstrate that Hindus and Muslims could not stay together. One lesson that successive generations of Pakistani leaders have imbibed from this was that it was only force that the Hindus understood. Or as Ayub Khan put it so graphically in a directive about the objectives of Operation Gibraltar to Commander-in-Chief General Musa on 29th August 1965, and I quote, as a general rule, Hindu morale would not stand more than a couple of blows delivered at the right time and place. Such opportunities should, therefore, be sought and exploited. Unquote. Or as Ayub's biographer put it, the Hindu has no stomach for a fight. The use of violence in the Pakistani psyche has, over the decades, mutated into the concept of terror. 
based on their perception of the muslim rule of the subcontinent pakistan is held as the hindu that is the indian was submissive consequently through terror alone a decision could be imposed upon him according to brigadier malik's quranic concept of war a compulsory breeding in the army establishments is yours time once a condition of terror into the opponent's heart is obtained hardly anything is left to be achieved in fact terror is not a means of imposing a decision upon the enemy it is the decision that is to be imposed upon him that is terror for the sake of terror it is this belief of terror as a means of warfare that has been used to justify covert pakistani terrorist attacks in kashmir and other parts of india the argument is that through terrorism it would be possible to force india to the negotiating table in a weakened position to quote ayub again right, the political aim for the struggle in kashmir was to weaken india's resolve and bring her to a conference table without provoking a general war and quote to strike terror into the hearts of the enemy his faith must be weakened whereas a muslim soldier must adhere even more firmly to his own religion furthermore this standard of terror is equally applicable to nuclear as well as conventional wars thus making terror an adjunct to pakistan's nuclear strategy unfortunately for pakistan forceful and successful indian reaction has invariably refuted such assumptions surprised the pakistanis and many pakistani leaders have lived to regret such a fallacy for example led to believe that one pakistani muslim soldier was equal to 10 hindu indian soldiers the inability to take kashmir in 1965 was a rude awakening for the pakistani public writing about the indian victory in bangladesh ayub khan wrote in his diary on 16th december 1971 i suppose the hindu morale is now very high it is the first victory they have had over muslims for centuries it will take us a long time to live this down uncle let me now talk about the pakistan army and its beliefs something that is critical in the understanding of pakistan walter's famous quip where some states have an army the prussian state has a the prussian army as a state has been used frequently and realistically so with regard to pakistan and its army so all powerful as the army become that instead of being an organ of the executive the army has become identified with the state itself it is not just the sheer size of the army nor its huge business interest but the army's claims to be the defender of pakistan's territorial frontiers and the ideology of pakistan that has given it a larger than life role in pakistan so much so that the threat perceptions of the army have become the threat perceptions of the state and as stephen cohen puts it time and again the army's way has been pakistan's way the key to army's dominance was the advice that was given by major general sher ali khan pataudi to general yahya khan in 1969 that the army's ability to rule lay in its being perceived by the people as and i quote a mythical entity a magical force that would succor them in times of need when all else failed the army was the final guarantor of pakistan and its well-being unquote every military ruler has made this the cornerstone of his policy it is when the army's charisma starts to fade that the generals know their time is up the army has crafted pakistan's strategic concerns and policies since the 1950s even when there has been a civilian government in power it is the army that has called the shots as far as key foreign policy defense and security issues are concerned as a consequence since the army thinks of security largely in military terms the military aspects of security have predominated 
Pakistan's strategic thinking at the cost of non-military war. This is a major part of the tragedy that Pakistan faces today. The army that Pakistan inherited at birth was Punjabi dominated and Punjab was the dominant province of Pakistan, especially after 1971. This trend has continued till today. The difference that the areas of recruitment have shifted from being predominantly in Potohar in North Punjab to Central and South Punjab and to the urban centers. Two core beliefs of the army stem from the circumstances of partition. The first is that partition itself was unfair and incomplete. A linked belief is the perception that India has not accepted partition and given an opportunity would outdo it. Post-1971, after the creation of Bangladesh, this belief has been further strengthened and has given rise to the third core belief that Bangladesh must be avenged. The fourth is that the army is not only the guardian of the territorial frontiers of Pakistan, but as I mentioned earlier, of the ideological frontiers and custodian of Nazaria e Pakistan or the ideology of Pakistan. A fifth element is that politicians cannot be trusted, as given an opportunity, they would compromise Pakistan's interests. A final attempt, uh, element arising out of its geographical insecurities vis a vis India is the concept of strategic defense uh, depth in Afghanistan. A key element of the army's thinking and culture is a visceral hatred for India. According to a retired Lieutenant General, Tanvir Nakhvi, the average Pakistani officer of today, and I quote, has no doubt in his mind that the adversary is India and that the whole raison d'etre of the army is to defend against India. His image of Indians is of an anti-Pakistan, anti-Muslim, treacherous people, so he feels that he must always be ready to fight against India, unquote. Based on these core beliefs, the army has developed a doctrine whose key elements are, one, borrowed power in conventional capability from the US and conventional and nuclear capability from China to neutralize India's conventional superiority and its nuclear weapons. Second, use of non-state actors. Initially, the concept was to militarily seize Kashmir that later transformed into bleeding India by a thousand cuts to bring it to the negotiating table in a weakened position and ultimately change the status quo in Jammu and Kashmir. Third, continuing to use non-state actors against India under the nuclear overhang, though this strand has been dented after Uri, especially Balakot. Fourth, not to allow politicians any independence of action on foreign defense and nuclear policies lest they compromise Pakistan's interests. Five, to ensure a weak, dependent and friendly towards Pakistan government in Afghanistan to choke the Indian footprint and deny it any space there. And last, despite internal threats taking on a greater salience and hence the focus on counter-terrorism, the threat from India remains a priority given India's capabilities. One of the important lessons that I've learned in studying Pakistan is to try and understand what is its mindset when it comes to India or how does Pakistan, especially the army, view India? So it, is, it is the army that calls the shots in Pakistan. It is crucial to understand how the army perceives India. The various elements of the Pakistani mindset towards India have been distilled in a publication titled India, a study in profile by Lieutenant Colonel, later Lieutenant General Javed Hassan for the Command and Staff College, Quetta. It is widely read and is prescribed reading in various army institutions. After analysis of 2000 years of Indian history, the study concludes as follows. One, India has a poor track record at projection of power beyond its frontiers. Two, it has a hopeless record in protecting its own freedom and sovereignty 
despite having larger armies. Three, dismal performance of the military is matched by the near total absence of any popular resistance against foreign domination. Fourth, the key traits of the Hindu are presumptuousness, persistence and deviousness. Five, India has been unable to exist as a single unified state. Six, India's northern and western states represented its Hindu core. Indian Punjab, Jammu and Kashmir, the southern state of Tamil Nadu and the six northeastern tribal states are alienated from the Indian mainstream and with some encouragement could become centres of insurgencies that could weaken India if not dismember it. The other states have regionalist impulses but inadequate momentum for secessionism. And finally, India is unviable and Pakistan only needs to give it a push and this artificial Hindu state would implode. Pakistan has been looking for that push ever since. How does a practical implementation of this mindset, a distilled view, work? Given his views on Hindus and thus on India, it is hardly surprising that Javed Hassan, who by 1999 was force commander in other areas, was one of the infamous four who, together with Musharraf, Chief of General Staff Muhammad Aziz, and Commander Tenko Mehmood Ahmed, planned a scheme like Kargil. The whole scheme was based on the assumption underlined by Hassan on how the Hindu would cave in before a superior power. Such a massive miscalculation based on half-baked knowledge and other priori assumptions can have disastrous consequences in the future, given that both countries are nuclear weapons powers. Such attitudes reflect the Pakistan army's civilizational hostility towards India. This is unlikely to change in the near or medium term. Pakistan's attitude and policy towards India hinges on one factor above all else, the desire for parity, military, political and regional parity. It is this obsessive and fixated yet elusive search for parity with India that accounts for the trajectory of its defence, security and foreign policies. It also explains the various strategies that Pakistan has adopted over the decades and continues to adopt, unmindful of the consequences of its own survival. The compulsive need for parity harks back to the history of the subcontinent and to the Pakistan movement. Believing itself to be the inheritors of a millennia of Islamic rule over the Indian subcontinent, and especially of the Mughals, Pakistan feels that its inheritance demands at least equality, if not superiority to India. It is this quest that led to the demand of a separate Muslim homeland in the first place and to Jinnah's articulation that Muslims must have parity in representation in legislatures despite being a numerical minority. In Pakistan, the quest for parity and the imagined threat perception from India has come at a huge cost. As noted Pakistani writer Ahmed Faruqi notes, and I quote, Pakistan's continuing preoccupation with seeking a military solution to its conflict with India is strategically myopic on three counts. First of all, it has not been militarily successful. Secondly, it has failed to achieve Pakistan's stated political aims. And third, it has been costly in terms of the benefits foregone by not spending enough on raising the people's standard of living. For Pakistan, Kashmir was and is the unfinished agenda of partition. It is the K in the acronym Pakistan. Jinnah called Pakistan a Kashmir-Pakistan Sharag or Jagular. Kashmir acquired greater salience after Bangladesh broke away from Pakistan. Issues of revenge against India apart, the creation of Bangladesh effectively buried the two-nation theory and the use of Islam to weld a national identity. As a result, 
Pakistan needed another crutch as an ideological nationalist narrative. This crutch became the ideology of Pakistan, of which Kashmir was an integral part. As a result, Pakistan's position on Kashmir is frozen in time without an alternative strategy. Its military strategy to wrest Kashmir by force, as in 1947-65-1999, has repeatedly failed. Its semi-military strategy of using terrorists since 1989 to force India to come to the negotiating table in a weakened position has not been successful either. It has failed to develop any coherent political strategy except to intermittently raise the issue of human rights violations. This hasn't worked either. But despite repeated failures, Pakistan will not relent on Kashmir. Why is that? I think Zulfikar Ali Bhutto in 1969 perhaps gave the best explanation in his book, The Myth of Independence. And he wrote a line quote. It's a long quote. He says, asks, why does India want Jammu and Kashmir? And then he replies, she retains the state against all norms of morality because she wants to negate the two-nation theory, the basis of Pakistan. If a Muslim majority area can remain a part of India, the raison d'etre of Pakistan collapses. For the same reasons, Pakistan must continue unremittingly her struggle for the rights of self-determination of this subject people. It would be fatal if in sheer exhaustion or out of intimidation, Pakistan were to abandon the struggle and a bad compromise would be tantamount to abandonment, which might in turn lead to the collapse of Pakistan. If, however, we settle for tranquil relations with India without an equitable resolution of disputes, it would be the first major step in establishing Indian leadership in our parts, with Pakistan and other neighboring states becoming Indian satellites." Unquote. In this one paragraph, you have the philosophical underpinnings of Pakistan's Kashmir policy. Though Bhutto was hanged by the Pakistan army, his articulation of Pakistan's relentless quest for Kashmir has been followed assiduously by all subsequent rulers, civil and military. The elements he identified, especially the impact of a Muslim-majority province in India on Pakistan's raison d'etre, are the bedrock of Pakistan's Kashmir policy. Thus, when elements in India prescribe talking to Pakistan as a means of coming to grips with the situation in JNK, they play into the hands of Pakistan. First, they give Pakistan the veto uh, over what is essentially an Indian issue. Second, they present to Pakistan on a platter what it has been seeking to achieve for decades through military and semi-military means. Make India come to the negotiating table for talks on Kashmir. For the last 70 years, every government in India has tried to engage with Pakistan to develop a policy that would enable us to live like normal neighbours. Our finest diplomats have spent their careers in implementing such policies. There have been many back-channel, track 1.5, track 2, track 3 discussions and so on. All such efforts have not yet succeeded in bridging the gulf between the two countries. Today, seven decades after India was partitioned, we are where we were with Pakistan, even as the world around us has changed fundamentally. This has led me to ask a basic question. What is the missing element in Indian policy formulation and practice that has resulted repeatedly in a one-step-forward and two-step-backwards relationship with Pakistan? Or to put it differently, why doesn't Pakistan behave as a normal state and neighbour when it comes to India? This, to my mind, is the greatest challenge in India's relations with Pakistan. To me, the reason for this appears to be that India has had a one-dimensional approach towards Pakistan, treating it as a normal state, whereas Pakistan is anything but a normal state when it comes to India. 
we need to develop two more dimensions. The first is an in-depth understanding of Pakistan. And the second is to factor in how Pakistan views India and its mindset. For example, I've asked myself whether a normal, let alone a positive relationship with India, even fits into Pakistan's ideological and security narrative. Anti-India is how Pakistan defines its identity. Can we get around this? How do we deal with Pakistan's obsessive desire for parity with India? How do we deal with Pakistan's fixation for Kashmir? Do we understand the mindset of the Pakistani establishment and its hatred for India? In reality, the grooves of any talks between India and Pakistan on Kashmir and terrorism are deep and difficult to change. For Pakistan, Kashmir has to be on the top of the agenda. The blueprint for future engagement agreed to at UFA failed precisely because Kashmir was not given the priority Pakistan expected. No government of Pakistan can survive for long without projecting Kashmir as a core issue. This also explains the behavior of Imran Khan post 5th August 2019. In any case, what do India and Pakistan talk on Kashmir? All Pakistan wants to get at a minimum is the Kashmir Valley. It knows that Jammu and Ladakh are pipe dreams. Its entire foreign and defense policies are geared towards that objective. That is why it keeps harping on the UN resolutions on the one hand and uses non-state actors on the other to promote violence. However, it must be noted that for Pakistan, an unresolved Kashmir issue also serves the useful purpose to whip up anti-India public opinion to divert attention from any divisive domestic issue. And keeping Kashmir on the boil also serves the Pakistan army well, assuring it a preeminent place in Pakistan with the first claim on its resources. This brings me to the uh, current situation, which is the ground being cut under Pakistan's feet as far as Kashmir is concerned following the 5th August 2019 developments. Post-5th August 2019, changes in the constitutional status of JNK and the reorganization of the state, Pakistan's attitude has become even more belligerent, and it has laid down that there can be no talks unless India reverses the changes made. This is not going to happen, so the possibility of the talks at the moment are bleak, if not non-existent. Over the decades, Pakistan has got used to India turning the other cheek and absorbing the pain. This has only reinforced its belief that they could trample all over India. In the last couple of years, however, things have started changing. And hence, you will find that Pakistan is struggling to find an answer. Uri, local commanders empowered to retaliate on the LOC, Balakot strike and the 5th August developments in JNK are indicators of this. Hence, Pakistan has changed its narrative from the submissive Hindu to the Hindu supremacist and RSS philosophy followed by the BJP. With this nationalist narrative of Kashmir Baringa Pakistan built over the decades having been shattered, Pakistan is hitting out in every direction using overt and covert means. Imran Khan's threatening speeches, moves in the Security Council, talking of false flag operations, warning of a bloodbath, accusing India of trying to subsume Kashmiri identity, threatening further radicalization of Kashmiris, conventional war that would escalate into a nuclear holocaust, and so on are just examples. The underlying effort is to incite people to take to the streets and protest against the Indian government. However, Pakistan has not been able to get international traction. Only China, Turkey and Malaysia have given some statements in support. The reality is that after the high point of the 2019 UNGA session, the international attention on Kashmir has tapered off. Imran Khan has realized that he has been under the mistaken impression that the Islamic world would back his narrative on reversing the constitutional changes in Kashmir 
and the Western powers were zero in on alleged human rights violations. Barring symbolic statements, neither has happened, but the underlying message has been that it is an internal matter of India. It is obvious that as the reality of changes in JNK sinks in, Imran Khan is getting more desperate. While the abusive statement that he has made personally targeting Prime Minister Modi could pander to his domestic audience, especially the army, bilaterally, they are nothing short of a disaster. Apart from his own predilections, the selected Prime Minister is undoubtedly trying to please his army masters. However, if he were ever to be serious about a dialogue with India in the future, he would find that it would be a long, arduous and uphill road to retract his abuses against the Prime Minister, make amends and be taken seriously by the Indian government. Has the recent joint statement of the BGMOs made any difference? We can perhaps discuss this during the question and answers. I would conclude by saying that the key elements in understanding Pakistan are that it was premised on the assumption that Hindus and Muslims could not live together and that Islam provided the basis for a nation state. Both these assumptions have proved to be incorrect. Added to this was the quest for parity with India, seen largely in military terms, that has been the central reason for Pakistan being a security state and its inability to transform itself into a democratic nation with a strong development agenda. Were the quest for parity with India have been across the board, Pakistan may well have been a different country. Parity in terms of democratic functioning, economic development, education, social sector advancement, etc. would have seen a fundamental shift in Pakistan's priority. Finally, the Kashmir obsession has combined with the above elements to distort Pakistan's development as a normal state. It is unlikely that the Pakistan security establishment will relinquish the notion of parity with India. If its track record is anything to go by, Pakistan will continue to pay a heavy price in terms of lack of internal development in its elusive quest for parity with India and hasten its trajectory towards the Abyss. Let me end by quoting two of Pakistan's most famous poets, Fez Ahmed Fez, uh, when he, uh, in one of his uh, earlier poems, he writes, Ye daag daag ujala, ye shab guzida seher. Ye daag daag ujala, ye shab guzida seher, woh intizar tha jiska, ye woh seher to nahi. And Habib Jalib, talking about the Pakistan army's action in Bangladesh, says, Mohabbat goliyon se bo rahe ho. Mohabbat goliyon se bo rahe ho, vatan ka chehra khun se dho rahe ho. Kuman tumko ki rasta katraha hai, yakin mujko ki manzil ko rahe. Pakistan is caught between Faiz's anguish at the unfinished birth of Pakistan and the baggage of the Pakistan movement. Wo intizar tha jiska ye wo seher to nahi. And Jalib's lament of what the rulers of Pakistan have done to the country. Watan ka chehra khun se to rahe ho. As it tries to change, chase distant barrages, yakin mujko ki manzil ko rahe. Thank you very much for your patience. Very, very beautiful, beautiful talk and the conclusion. And if I may uh, ask the, the Fez quote that you quoted, the Fez share, isn't it in response to Go Subha Kabhi to Aayegi? No, no. This is dawn of freedom. Okay. This Just after 47 when all the refugees and everybody was coming in, that's when he was... Go Subha Kabhi Aayegi was a Hindi movie. Yeah, but I had heard that they used to, uh, in, in the freedom struggle, all these progressive poets, they used to go by something like that. that this is this is post-partition. 
yeah this is this is post partition and i think fez uh, met a very bad fate uh, especially at the hands of ziaul haq he was yeah. he was locked uh, jail, up in jail he was locked up in jail for a long time and he was newly married and all i don't know what happened to iqbal the national poet but mm. fez yes yeah. uh, my question one yeah. uh, you quoted from that book the hindu identities largely uh, devious and what did you say presumptuous presumptuous and, and persistent yes i would like you to comment on this please see, because this i is, think it is true you know uh, this man javed hasan so he was given this task he was this is assignment given to him so he studied the entire of indian history for 2000 years and these are the conclusions uh, that he uh, drew after a study of indian history now you can challenge it uh, you can not agree with it but the fact is this is what the pakistan army believes because this is what they are taught and this is what they are believe that this is what india what the hindu is like so we can keep we can argue about it we can discuss it but this is a fact that this is an element of faith with them that this is what indians are so young army officer when he is uh, trained and this is what he is told that this is what your enemy is this is what he is like so this is what they believe for example you know they mention that india's northeast jammu and kashmir punjab and tamil nadu surprisingly even tamil nadu these are india's weak points so punjab you know what happened you know what's happening in kashmir the northeast and tamil nadu are the next targets this is something which we should be aware of and uh, be conscious of i think even kerala now this study doesn't mention kerala but yes tamil nadu and kerala would be here this is wonderful listen to you i have read two of your books the third one of on that conundrum of baluchistan i just downloaded i'm sorry unable to get it signed from you because it's on kindle <laughs> i wish they could find out some method for doing that and just a small one two small issues points one what uh, general hasan has been talking about about the hindu uh, outlook and their behavior over the last uh, millennium or so is something which is uh, replicated more or less in in, in our textbooks even in our textbooks but ncert you will find they only talk about hindu defeats and hardly about any hindu what do you call it? army is winning any states that's one second the children are been have been taught for the last three generations in pakistan this has been imbibed into them from that time that uh, india is a loser hindu is a loser now do you think it's going to get set right in the next Twenty years or thirty years, but next generation is again going to be the same as the present one. I would like to have your comments. You see, on the first one, I I agree with you. Unfortunately, ever since Macaulay's minute on education, there has been a massive distortion in the. Is it to destroy a civilization, to destroy a people, you have to distort the education, and I. think only now there some sort of realization is coming in to us so we are not you know for example the longest serving dynasty in india are the cholas 2000 years the cholas ruled and they are the only power which went out into southeast asia even today the traces of hindu uh, influence in southeast asia the cholas how many people know anything about the cholas especially in the north 
we are not talked about the cholas we are not talked about the satwanas we are not talk about the chalukyas but mughal history of the last 200 years is glorified they become the great mughals so this is such a huge distortion and it's so unfortunate that anybody now who tries to correct a curriculum is immediately labeled as a hindutva is labeled as a bhakti is labeled as whatever kashmir is where is the home of shaivism for example and such an integral part of uh, the indian uh, culture and society is treated that this is we are changing the demography of uh, kashmir so it will take time to not happen uh, easily it take 20 30 40 50 years it will take to remove the distortions uh, which are there that you know they never won for example nobody appreciates the fact about um, prithvira chohan why is he defeated mahmud of gori but the third time any forgive him both times third time gori won and he was not going to forgive uh, prithvira chohan so it depends on the value system of the which where you are coming from so that's one thing the second point is you see what is taught in pakistan schools since i, I have been there an opportunity to look at some of their textbooks you know you have the qaeda the beginning a b c d a for apple b for ball so they are taught in their qaeda what is called uh, in urdu so zar se zalim and there they have a photograph of a sardar so in the mind of a child all sardars are zalims dar se daku and you have a photograph of a pandit ji sitting with a big tummy and with a uh, you know bodhi at the back so in the mind of a child hindus are dakus this is taught to them in kg 1 2 3 Then you look at the studies uh, when they grow up, sixth, seventh, eighth, ninth. Pakistani organizations and NGOs have carried out studies of Pakistani textbooks. What is taught to them? It is far worse than what can be taught in madrasas. A Pakistani, especially in Punjab, going to a government school comes out as a full-fledged jihadi. He doesn't have to go to the madrasa because the hatred that is imbibed in him against Hindus, Christians, and Jews. and taught the virtues of shahadat and taught the virtues of jihad he doesn't need to get any more training he's already that so unless and until a change is done in the curriculum today the effect of this will be visible 20 years from now nothing is going to happen because you know this entire generations four five generations have been brainwashed especially after 77 after zia came in before that the education curriculum was far better they taught about ramayan they talked about mahabharat They, uh, they were, you know, the virtues of Gandhi ji, and all those things were there. After seventy-seven, it totally changed, because Zia said the objective of education should be to produce an Islamized society, right? So everything that was not in that line with those objectives was thrown away. So today, the Pakistani curriculum is, uh, you know, you will be absolutely shocked. That's why I keep in my lectures, keep trying to emphasize that we don't understand Pakistan. You know, we look at Pakistan. from our moderate secular point of view they look upon you with sheer hatred because this is what they have been taught for the last 60 70 years this is what they have been taught so hum to bada hath badhate hain and you know there is a totally different i'm sorry to have to say this but that's what that's the reality is i i have a question you said that nothing's nothing's going to change unless we change the curriculum but why would pakistan want to change the curriculum at all they're very uh, the very basis of it rests on the separate identity yeah good question but there also there are sensible people in pakistan too who see what is happening to their society the poison that is spreading because now the situation has come 
you find on, on the streets and demonstrations, they hold the entire cities to ransom. Whether Tariq al-Labak, Pakistan, or those demonstrations you've had in Karachi, the religious parties have become stronger and stronger. And the moderate societies are on the back foot. Because even the people who have gone to government schools are believe that this is the right thing. So sensible people in Pakistan say, that, look, where are we going? And if we are going to be part of an international state system, you're living on an island. You're part of a state system. And if this is your ideas and this is your beliefs, like the boy cutting off his hand because he's raised his hand, and see what the newspapers said about this. So that's the danger where people realize that if a person is willing to harm himself for the sake of religion, what will he do to others? You know, so people also realize this, that you know, we've gone too far down this road. But to pull back will require a superhuman effort. I don't see any leaders on the horizon who can willing to take that chance. So one thing is that uh, the instance about the boy chopping his hand in the name of blasphemy proclaimed by a mullah, it's revolting. But do you think that should be a lesson for Indian media also to stop engaging mullahs when they call them to the debate and make fun of them and think that some people have clapped, which means their job is done. But in a long run, it's actually a very dangerous thing that instead of calling intellectuals, because there you have to do some homework, you're calling these mullahs to the uh, to the uh, stage. And, you know, they will be crude. They will be rough. They will actually talk, you know, from the book and without being polished. So this engagement with them, bringing them to the mass, you know, masses, is that a, a, a mistake of Indian media right now? That's question number one. The, another example of Prithviraj, a brave warrior, but then understanding your enemy is also important. So when we talk about that, uh, there is a school of thought in India which says that let's make sure that another Pulbama does not happen, which means be proactive about terrorists. And when you retaliate, retaliate against the Pakistani armed forces. Make sure that when we have 40 you know, dead bodies of Indian soldiers here, they also have the dead bodies of armed forces and not your terrorists because they don't count. Do you think that would be a good strategy or will it lead to a full-on war? Okay. A very interesting question. You see, I don't... Um, I mean, I have nothing against the media. I think the media does a wonderful job. But I have a problem with the format of discussions which are held on Indian TV. These are mostly... You know, there will be some exceptions. These are mostly TRP-oriented debates. The more people shout and scream and try to... Uh, Outshout the other and make ridiculous statements, the more the channels feel they're getting TRPs. So that's why these people, and that's why the debates, I don't, I try not to come on too many channels or too many debates precisely for this reason, because you know they get down into slanging matches. I'll give you one example. Soon after this uh, COVID thing started, you know, Nizamuddin Markaz, there was a problem. So on this one particular debate, there were two Muslim scholars. One was from Nizamuddin Olia's the Hazrat uh, Nizamuddin ke Markaz and other was from the Nizamuddin Markaz which is the Tablighi Jamaat. The anchor did not even know the difference between the two and when this person from Hazrat Nizamuddin was speaking he started shouting him and berating him tumne ye COVID because of this. He said hum to ki wo Nizamuddin Markaz ko band karo, Jamaat ko se band karke nikalo. But this anchor kept shouting on this poor guy. So if he was not an extremist, at the end of the debate, he would have become an extremist. Now, this is the unfortunate lack of awareness of our own anchors 
and the silly things they are able to say on TV. And basically, the idea is to provoke. You know, they are provoking people. You see, one big thing we must realize: we uh, paint everybody in the same brush. The key madrasas, whether it's in India, uh, the key madrasa that are fomenting or from where the graduates are coming out and becoming terrorists in Pakistan are all Deobandis, right? Deobandi ka headquarters markaz kahan par hai? India mein. Why is it that the students from Deoband and the Deobandi curriculum don't become terrorists? We have never paid enough importance or congratulated or shabashi to our own Muslim scholars who have kept the Deobandi students in the straight and narrow because they have given them good education. वहाँ क्या होता है देवबंद स्कॉलर से वो मदरसे से निकलता है आईएसआईएस देयर टू हैंड हिम आई एके 47 एस अ ग्रेजुएशन गिफ्ट सो ही बिकम्स अ टेररिस्ट इंडिया में क्यों नहीं होते करिकुलम तो वही है ना एंड एल्मा मार्टर इंडिया में है सो इट इस आल्सो द अवेयरनेस दैट वी नीड टू हैव एंड स्पेशली on matters like this, which are of national interest, which impact the social cohesion of the country. But because everybody is doing it, so everybody is doing it. The second question about Prithvila uh, Chawa. You see, also, I agree with you, you should judge the enemy, but you also have to see an issue from the context in which it was held. The value system of the Rajputs at that particular time was different. Today, we are seeing it with hindsight, 2020, that they should do culture. Tha. That was the culture, that was the belief, that was the system that he was being brought up in uh, this thing, to forgive. The other guy didn't come from that system. So, you know, uh, that's where the problem was. And uh, retaliation, yes. You see, uh, what happens in terrorist situation is that a lot of terrorists take shelter in civilian areas. They will fire from the houses. What happens then in that case uh, to the army? What are they supposed to do? If you tell them that in civilian area, fire nahi karenge, then you're tying their hands. They're taking bullets, they're taking hits. But then you say you don't fire. Uh, uh. So it's a, it's a very complex. Counterinsurgency is extremely complex. But yes, certainly army targets should definitely be. This is what the Indian Army has been doing. They're focusing on the targeting uh, army installations from where the fire or where the terrorists have originated from. But in situations, in civilian situations, in urban areas, when fire is coming to you from a house, you'll try your best to save. But then, you know, you, you understand what the limitations are. So my question is that who actually benefited first from the creation of Pakistan and secondly from this prolonged conflict, both ways? <clears throat> you see, for the simple answer, the first question is, Jinnah was a congressman, right? He was even given the title of the ambassador of Hindu-Muslim unity. I think in the 1930s, well, no, the Nagpur session, or one particular session it was, he realized that he did not have a future in the Congress so long as Gandhiji and Pandit Nehru were there. Right? He realized that you know, nothing can be done. It was a lot of his, and also he was egged on by the British. The British had realized what his uh, capabilities were and they wanted to use him. After the 35 um, uh, uh, election, he in fact left. He went to uh, UK, started practicing law there. He was staying in Hampstead Heath. He was then brought back, uh, sorry, uh, in the, after the 1931 election. When the British knew that the 35 Act is coming and more uh, provincial autonomy would be given and there will be Indian participation even at the centre, they persuaded Jinnah to come back. So the benefit 
of creating of a new country was to largely the small muslim elite in north india who felt they had been deprived of jobs power and patronage with the coming of the british and under representative government one man one vote they feared that hindus would come into power ek to unka benefit ye tha the second question is who has benefited from the prolonged uh, conflict in the case of pakistan it clearly the pakistan army that has benefited from the prolonged conflict because they have had access to the maximum resources they don't even after you know the creation of bangladesh the army was split half and half but today pakistan army is double than what it was in 1971 even though they have lost half the territory so the army has certainly benefited from there uh, from that i think foreign powers have also benefited from the fact that it is not a strong subcontinent if the subcontinent was one and you did not have the issues of uh, radicalization and terrorism then you can imagine if your borders stretched from uh, iran afghanistan all the way to uh, myanmar and the uh, bay of bengal what a powerful country this would have been right so i think that that is answers the question origin of the two nation theory i think it lies in the intellectual realm by sir sayed and molana azad how they created this uh, idea of pan islamism in the minds of muslims even before the country was partitioned so i think not, it is not a political genesis it is more of an intellectual genesis not molana azad in fact uh, molana azad's difference with jinnah precisely was this he said that nowhere in the quran or in islam does it say that you can form a nation or country on the basis of islam he points to the example of uh, medina where uh, the holy prophet you know everybody in that riyasat e medina was part of the country it was not purely based on islam this is the so his difference is jinnah was that but yes sayyid ahmed khan started from there in the 1880s and 1890s and then got filtered 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 ultimately jinnah was the man who actually uh, implemented it so and this came about because of the fear of representative government you see nobody knew how representative government is going to work i mean they they assumed that all the hindus will vote for a hindu person and so because hindus are uh, three times their population or four times the population the hindus will come into power not realizing that among there will be so many different political parties nobody knew how representative government would work in 1890s and 1990 so they felt he that's why separate electorates so its electorate electorate in 1905 which was set up was precisely because of this fear that hame to koi vote dega nahi so we must have a separate electorate so the british were willing to play along because they felt and by the time you know the congress has started showing who had become more aggressive going to the ministry of debating club by the 1890s and early 20th century they had started taking strong resolutions taking strong resolutions so the british felt this is a good time separate electorates karo inko divide karo politically see before the separate electorates there were differences between hindus and muslims on the social and cultural plane obviously two different religions but politically may on the political side there were very few differences what the british did was to for divide and rule projected these differences onto the political plane sir i have uh, nearly two three questions so my first question is uh, like uh, what will be the solution for pakistan will bullet will be the solution or will be the breaking pakistan will be the solution and uh, my second question is why indian state does it interfere in pakistan uh, regional politics why they can't uh, have their men's or the people who are uh, of their ideology 
uh, why we don't support them by financially and all so that uh, the anti pakistan uh, anti india will be destroyed and my third question is uh, what will, uh, what will be indian long term goal to detect uh, the, the, the terrorism in pakistan how we can do it? solution for pakistan will come from the people of pakistan itself right they have to decide what is the kind of government who in the government whether they want the army to dominate whether they want x y z solution of pakistan has to come from pakistan but one area which i did not go into uh, in this lecture given the constraints of time pakistan today is in an extremely vulnerable position because of non traditional security threats in my book pakistan quoting the abyss <clears throat> i coined an acronym called weep which is water education economy and population Take the case of water. Pakistani's own think tanks, they have predicted that Pakistan will become an absolute water scarce country by 2025. That's four years from now. Absolute water scarce country means less than 500 cubic meters per capita per annum, which is drought-like conditions in major parts of the country. Now you can't get China can't give you water. You can't get water from anywhere else. There is no other industry, but one industry. That's a major problem. in terms of education 50% of pakistan's children don't go to school at the primary level and there are massive dropouts between by the time they get to class 5 so the number of children who actually graduate are just about very few maybe 10% of the total population of children who are actually graduating population is growing at 2.4% the largest in south asia and largest most part of the world it is unsustainable about 3 million people are entering the labor force year after year whereas pakistan's economy cannot provide jobs for more than 600,000 to a million so what happens to the 200 million who are joining the labor force year after year for the next 40 years so you know these are structural and institutional issues that pakistan has which actually will lead if they're not corrected lead to an implosion of pakistan so i don't think we need to look for a solution for pakistan Pakistan's people and Pakistan's leadership will have to look for a solution for Pakistan itself. Otherwise, they are just going to implode. Why doesn't India interfere in Pakistan? Any interference in other countries' politics? Do you like them or China or America coming and interfering in your politics? Or people who are anti-India to start supporting them openly? You can't do it. It's not done. I'm sure intelligence agencies are doing it, but you can't do it openly. You can't announce it, and you can't. Uh, and publish support for that long term solution against terrorism is again is something that pakistan has been forced to do you see now this uh, financial action task force which you must have heard of pakistan has been on the grey list since 2018 and this has forced them to recalibrate their strategy as far as using terrorists is concerned because if they were to graduate to the blacklist the economy would be Have devastating implications for the economy. They will not be able to raise capital abroad. All their transaction costs will go up. Nobody will be able to invest in Pakistan. Pakistan will not be able to send their money out. So, because of this scare of getting put on the blacklist, they have reined in terrorism for the last three years. It is very difficult because terrorists could be even a very cool lagjay. Then what do you do? If you watched, I don't know, the younger people may not have seen the film Sai Bibi or Gulam. where this fellow gunna comes up to uh, the uh, rehman and says ki hazaron par jang lag gaya that means they have not 
carried out any activities for a long time. So what do you do with the jihadis? Jihadis, you have to use them somewhere. So I think terrorism, ultimately Pakistan itself, through international pressure, will have to control terrorism itself. When you speak of Pakistan, you say Pakistan. When I think of Pakistan, I think of it as demand for Balochistan, demand for separate Pakhtunistan, for a Sindhu Desh, and now a very uh, disappointed area of again Balochistan with the CPEC happening, nothing. They, they gain nothing out of it, I think. Well, true, uh, because the ethnic divisions in Pakistan are very strong. That's why Bangladesh became Bangladesh way back in 1971. Even though they were a majority population, they were 52% of the population of the then uh, undivided Pakistan. But they decided to break away because of the Bandiri. It's only the Punjab, which is actually the dominant uh, province in Pakistan, and they treat the others as, as colonies. The fifth insurgency, as I mentioned in Balochistan, the Pakhtuns and the PTM and the Sindhis. So they're all extremely unhappy uh, with Pakistan because the way Pakistan is configured, one province, a party, political party has to win only Punjab and they can form the government in Islamabad. They don't need the support from the other provinces because the majority of population is there. So that's, you know, that means that if Punjab, the Baluchistan, there is 13 uh, MNAs, 13 or 18 MNAs maybe. They have no consequence. They cannot project anything for their state because it is not Right? So that is that. It's a, it's a, it's a fault lines run very deep, uh, very deep in Pakistan. But like you said, Punjab is the most dominant. So I can't see like I can't say that. How long will it hold on together? It will hold on because the army is there. The army is also a Punjabi army. The majority of the people in the army are Punjabi, and then a lesser number of uh, Pashtuns. So they will hold the country by force. But what will if ultimately chips are down? They'll come to a Bangladesh-like of situation. They have to force their way out. Even Punjab is not a unified Punjab. You know, the uh, South Punjab is what is called Siraiki, which was a civilization of its own. The Multan used to be their capital. And uh, they speak a different language. They have their own very rich culture. They have their own literary tradition. But they have been also Kabza Karod by Punjab. So there is a movement to create a Siraiki province. If that Seraki province gets created, then it is the uh, imposed Yura Seraki. The, the, the uh, massive domination of Punjab will erode to a certain extent. So governments will not be formed purely out of uh, winning in Punjab. They will also have to win from other provinces. There is a movement to create a Seraki Suba, but let's see if it's successful. I believe there are fault lines, division of loyalties even within the army now. See, very little literature is available on this. What literature is available is that the influence of the Islamists, you know, because of the radicalization of society, because the army is recruiting from central and south Punjab today. That's also the area from where the Lashkar-e Taiba and the Jaish Muhammad also recruit. It is quite possible that one brother is going into the Jaish and the other brother is going to the army. You know, so there is a growing radicalization uh, in the. Um, in the army. But we don't know the extent of it. There have been cases in the past where the Pakistan army has refused to fire on protesters. In 1977 during the PNA movement, for example, three brigadiers had to be sacked because they did not allow, or their soldiers did not shoot into the crowd, but they shot in the air. And then there have been a whole lot of uh, uh, you know, 
conspiracy cases where a group of army men have tried to get together to overthrow the co-commanders and to capture the chief and things like that. So there is that division in the army. People now talk about division among the Shia officers and the Sunni officers because they pray separately and they're different uh, things. But I mean, it's been literature available and it's, very, it's only speculation. One can't say anything categorical about it. Uh, sir, let me start by saying that your work on this subject is very extensive. And as we speak, I do have Pakistan, the Balochistan conundrum in my hands. And this is my fifth read to this book. Uh, yeah. Uh, my question is, uh, sir, do you think that with the current colonial mindset that Pakistani establishment carries, um, free Balochistan movement will see the light of success maybe in another 20 years or 50 years down the line for that matter? Will uh, separate Balochistan be a possibility or not? How do you see it? It's a very difficult question because right now, as I mentioned in my book also, the Baloch face a very uphill task because the land-to-population ratio is skewed. They are just about 4.5% of the population and they are 44% of the area. The Pakistan army is better equipped, better trained, better weapons than what they have. So, physically, you know, through sheer force, they will not be able to break away from Pakistan. But they will keep the Pakistan army bogged down. They will increase the cost for holding down to Balochistan and making sure that their resources are not exploited by Pakistan. They will attack pipelines. So they will continue this kind of attack the Chinese, you know, try and disrupt Gwadar, disrupt the China-Pakistan economic corridor and so on. But, you know, in history, in the world politics, you have a thing called a black swan event. A black swan event is something that is not anticipated, but whose impact is devastating. Like COVID, for example. COVID is a total black swan event. Nobody anticipated this. But look at the devastation it has wrought all over the world. So, the situation may change tomorrow. Today, the neighbors of Balochistan, whether it's Iran or Afghanistan, are not interested in supporting Baloch insurgency in Pakistan because of their own Baloch. Tomorrow, things may change. Tomorrow, the US may decide to use Balochistan territory for an operation against the Iranians. In Bishkek, they will start supporting the Baloch. So, what will happen 20 years or 50 years down the road? It's absolutely impossible to predict. If it continues like this, what is happening for sure is that the Baloch consciousness, Baloch nationalism, children and women getting involved in the Baloch nationalist movement is going to grow and keep growing despite all the repression, all the human rights violations, the kill and dump policy. This is going to grow from strength to strength. Right? Social media presence is growing. world is becoming more aware of it. You know, so again, as I said, it's very, very difficult uh, to predict. But this is one thing that uh, you know a black swan event can happen and can turn the thing. But for that, the Baloch also will have to work very hard. For example, come on the same platform. They are divided amongst various tribes. You know, they have don't have a common minimum program. What do they want to do with an independent Balochistan? Is this the revival of the Sardari Nizam, the tribal areas? Or is it going to be a democratic Balochistan? So they also have to do a lot of their homework to get back on track on what exactly is it that they want. How come Indian, I mean, a particular a category of Indian politicians brazenly, you know, give statements uh, in favor of Pakistan, especially when we have, you know, serious uh, national security issues going on, for example, the Balakot strike and other, other such things. So, question here is: Are these leaders compromised in a way, uh, 
or are they arm twisted or you know blackmailed to give out such statements i don't think so i think the, the far simpler uh, explanation the politician does politics wherever he finds usko apna mafad hai usko you know he feels side advantage he will get by trying to show the government or the you know his opponent down he will take that opportunity he doesn't necessarily all the time think of larger interests so i would attribute uh, suspicious motives uh, to politicians like that i would just say that they feel that there is a political opportunity or point scoring and getting the names in the papers or get come across on television to uh, you know try and embarrass the government so uske liye mostly it happens of that now you say that india should not uh, india will not uh, interfere in the pakistan internals matter okay so we have a series of that like, we think we will be vishwa guru and i am a superpower and if we don't interfere in our neighbor politics only so what how will we become a superpower because superpower have to interfere anyway to make them safe like america china is trying to be safe and we are thinking of we will not do anything so this is our if no, we are no. not in our goal i i hope you're not saying that we should be called the ugly indian who was interfering everywhere there was a time when we were interfering in nepal we were interfering in sri lanka and you know you know what happened over there no it's all a question of um, interfering you see in the case of bangladesh all of us must also remember that india was faced with 10 million refugees you know 10 million people came across the border um, and we were burdened with them it became a massive human rights uh, what pakistan was doing in bangladesh a human rights issue that could not be ignored happening in the neighborhood now in the case of so let me give you an example where uh, some sort of action by india may be required as i mentioned 2025 water crisis in pakistan there's a drought in south punjab and drought in sindh and you have 250000 or 500000 people coming across the border and wanting to seek sanctuary in india what will india do at that time you know so situations may arise situations may happen may happen may not happen i don't know but that is the kind of situation only when you can interfere just because the fact that you want to be a superpower doesn't mean aap danda leke apne sare neighbors ko pitai kare not at all you know you work with them cooperatively in fact we have gained far greater goodwill and far greater acceptance by sending vaccines to all the neighborhood free of cost even though our own people have not been fully vaccinated that is what a great power is that is what a superpower is and look at even canada and now for us we are going to be doing it and we are doing it for the small islands the pacific islands the other islands in the indian ocean all our neighbors that is something which has won us the most uh, goodwill and acceptance of being the dominant power than anything else so that is the way to go forward i don't think so being a superpower is a very macho thing or that you go and go around and start interfering in your neighborhood country not at all